Everyone knows it takes a woman nine months to have a baby. But you Americans think if you get nine women pregnant, you can have a baby in a month. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts here in England, Matthew Russell and Chris Carney. Oh yeah, baby. Von, von Karman. Karman. Theodore Von Karman. Obviously a legend, made famous by totally. the Karman line. Of, of course, course, yes, the Karman line itself. Very, very famous aeronautical and astronautical engineer. Hmm. So a bit of a bit of a brainy chap then. Very brainy chap. And reason why I mention him is because today's interview is uh, with Kevin yeah. Rice who spent a long time at JPL. Mm-hmm. I thought it'd be really good if we uh, had a Von Karman quote. He was the first uh, what director right. of JPL. Awesome. What a dude. How long has uh, JPL been going for? We're going to find out Yeah, let out me just here, aren't quickly we? tell you a little bit about Kevin. He's, he's kind of like a business project yeah. business manager, and that's what he did at JPL. And the whole thrust of this interview is how a mission becomes a mission it's really interesting how many sort of hoops it has to jump through and how expensive these things and the oversight from congress and everything like that so it's really really interesting this guy knows what he's doing and he was there for some of the great jpl achievements the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, just in case you're wondering what it I was stands. wondering. No, I, I, I did know that one. I did know. I'm a little more than a lay person. I knew that one. But he, but he also worked at uh, Lockheed Skunk Works as well, being part of the financial setup of things like the SR-71 and make sure the business case oh. was there and things like that. Budgeting, scheduling. Can we just take a little minute, things. though, Cost just to think estimating. about the SR-71? Can we just pause, have a little moment? Uh, <sighs> okay, I'm ready to move on. Is it everyone's favourite? It aircraft? must be. I mean, mine. we discussed this before, so it, it's it was the one growing up which was just like <gasps> that is amazing, and the pictures in the books. And I mean, but I also I've also got a very sweet spot for the for the Vulcan for the RAF Vulcan. So you know that is a pretty impressive mm. sort of Cold War Uber bomber, <laughs> very very loud aircraft as well. I thought we'd quickly just touch base on jpl kevin really describes it really well but uh, jpl i think most people think mm. is part of nasa but it's right, it's okay. not oh, sorry it's managed yeah. by caltech and so they're actually caltech employees the people mm. that work at jpl Six thousand full-time caltech employees and thousands of contractors every day Amazing. working at jpl and their kind of primary function is to is is all the planetary robotic yeah. spacecraft. So anything you can think of, if you think of all the all the spacecraft, they they've flown spacecraft to every single planet yeah. in the in the solar system. For one, the Explorer One obviously was the first spacecraft by by the United States. So th- there we go. That yeah. was that was them. Uh, and and because of that, NASA was set up. So JPL kind of existed. I was just really surprised NASA. at how early it was. Nineteen thirty-six. Uh, it's like wow, wow. I mean, like they they literally must have just gone. This is a jet. 
let's make a propulsion laboratory. Like he must have, like literally just discovered. Jeff. He grew out of a group of of crazy cats, and I mean crazy. So these this bunch of students worked at the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory. Yeah. At as which which is part of the California Institute of Technology, the Caltech, and it was called Galsit at the time. And it can, and basically, it was this bunch of students who decided that they were going to make rocket motors. And these are legends, really, because mm. these are the people that helped develop America's rockets. Basically, you know, really were very, very influential with with rocketry in America. Not quite Goddard, but mm. they are the people that took Goddard's, you know, start and and then carried on making these alcohol fueled motors yeah and they became they became known as the suicide squad nice so i'll, I'll give you some of the names because they're really cool yeah. frank molina who was very impressive there's jean Rouchen. Oh, i don't know how to pronounce his name <laughs> uh weld oh, weld arnold that's a pretty good surname isn't it Definitely. weld yeah i love that but get this for us get this for a space person First name, Apollo M. O. Smith. Come on. Apollo. <laughs> Apollo is his first name, right? <laughs> Legendary space engineer. But there's this great one in, in this. Is this Jack Parsons dude? Mm. There's a little bit that you have to know about Jack Parsons and this other guy, Edward S. Foreman. So they were basically a bunch of nutters. They were given a sort of special patch of land to go test their rockets because it was so dangerous they they couldn't do it yeah. <laughs> nearby right <laughs> and uh, they they were doing it because one of them Frank Molina I think it was was writing uh his thesis uh for his engineering degree and his advisor for his thesis was Theodore von Kármán, none other than Theodore von Kármán. Right. right. Now, he saw the potential in the work that these guys were doing. It was like, we have to do something with this. So they basically set up the uh, JPL mm. and, uh, and, and, and von Kármán became their first director. But, yeah, way back, this is, you know, Way back in ninety October the thirty first, nineteen thirty six. Unbelievable. Right, absolutely amazing. Yeah. So far back then Yes. You know, like by the time the Apollo projects were coming around, these guys had been rocking for thirty years. Oh yeah, the, yeah, the, you know, they had been around a long time. And of course, as World War Two was approaching, they realized that uh, <laughs> that they, they should build bigger rockets. Yeah. And so they got this Arroyo Seco plot of land near Pasadena, uh, on the west border of Pasadena. And uh, they started developing rocket systems for the US Army. Hmm. And they were the first people to demonstrate JATO. Do you know what JATO is? Oh, God, I have no idea. Go on, give it to me. Jet-assisted takeoff. Yes, I like it. <laughs> which, is, which is different to Cato, which is... Catastrophic accident at takeoff. Oh, you definitely don't want that one. <laughs> yeah, and I used to work for a company called Cato before I realised that that's you know that was the acronym. Was it apt? <laughs> Very apt. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah. So the army kind of were were totally all over this, and they actually 
von Karman and Melina Parsons and all that lot, they actually established Aerojet Corporation right. to manufacture these, J- these JATO rockets. It became a formal army facility operated under contract by Caltech. Yeah. Jack Parsons in 1944, this is one of the guys that, you know, he's a legend in rocketry. Yeah. But he's also a total nutter. <laughs> like, he's utterly into Alistair Crowley. So he's really into the occult. He's into taking drugs. He's massively sexually promiscuous, like going to all these swingers clubs and stuff. <laughs> he's mates with L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, obviously, the FBI, I, I guess, weren't particularly chuffed with him. So he, he, got, he got sacked, mm. basically. Carried on working on rockets, and um, one day someone found him with his face blown off and his body in bits, and uh, he'd basically accidentally blown himself off. <laughs> blown himself off. Blown himself <laughs> up. <laughs> well, yeah, what about the downside? Yeah, um, well, it, no one uh, can making, accuse him of you know, not living his life to the full, let's put it that way. Yeah, he was. He's. It's so. He's got a very interesting backstory, that guy. Yeah. Old Jack Parsons. But yeah. Um, so they actually designed loads of these like ballistic missiles and stuff. So the JPL originally was, you know, was rocket technology and building rockets and stuff for for the army. Hmm. Um, but then they proposed that they should build a satellite for the International Geophysical Year, which of course the Russians were building Sputnik for, of and they lost out to Project Vanguard. But then they managed to uh, launch Explorer One. On a on a Juno one, um, uh, in in 1958, mm. and at that point, JPL was transferred to NASA away from the Army. Still managed by the university, but it became part of NASA, which was newly formed in December 1958. Right, and and therefore they were going to build planetary spacecraft, uh, and so they started designing Ranger and Surveyor, which were the which were the missions that went to the moon that prepared the way for Apollo. Mm. Not Apollo, the crazy rocket scientist, no. but Apollo, the series of famous rocket missions. <laughs> it's and quite uh, yeah, <laughs> so uh, um, so yes, they're they're in charge of of like planetary explanation, but they also have the Near Earth Object Program Office. Mm. So. In two, as of 2013, they'd found 95% of asteroids that are a kilometre or more in diameter that cross Earth's orbit. The dangerous ones. The dangerous ones. So they, they track all that stuff. They, they, they know about all the tiny little bodies in the solar system. Mm. Amazing. Uh, they employed female mathematicians back in the 1940s. Bravo, bravo. The, well, the all-female computations group <laughs> yeah. to work out all the trajectories and calculations. Uh, and they, in 1961, they hired Dana Ulleray as their first female engineer, which uh, and she worked on the Ranger and Mariner missions. Excellent. So just a rundown of the stuff that JPL have done is Mars 2020, the Perseverance rover, mm. and the Ingenuity... Ingenuity Mars helicopter. That's part of JPL's under JPL's kind of remit. Curiosity rover, InSight, Mars reconnaissance orbiter, Juno. You know the psyche, the up and coming psyche mission, yeah. which is very exciting. What's the psyche one? So you know, 
Yeah. And and a lot of the techniques that are used to process signals have all been developed at uh, JPL. And um, and wireless and wireless data transmission as well. A lot of that kind of, you know, things like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and stuff like that owes a lot to JPL scientists oh. that were using, you know, similar technology to send, you know, the messages from robotic spacecraft across millions of miles. Mm. So, you know, it's it, it's the, the what they've done is amazing. And, of course, there's a massive outreach uh, uh, part of JPL as well. They have lots of education wings. They... Um, so there's a big educational outreach, including looking after museums as well. So they, they supply museums with lots and lots of kind of stuff to show off, cool. basically, in museums. And so that they, you know, treat that as part of their job as well. So it's an amazing organisation, JPL. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've always been a, little, a bit of a fan, but, you know, I just didn't know so much about them, and especially the fact that they were a bunch of ragtag ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, really did. It started off as just ragtag ne'er do wells trying to blow themselves up, and then Sometimes and then the army took it in. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's quite lucky they had von, Car- you know, von Karman and the army kind of take them under their under their uh, arm, as it were. Yeah, and I think there's a, I think there's a slight bit of snobbery at, at JPL. I think they think that they're a cut above everyone else, right? Because they're just so good. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, <laughs> and, and I kind of wanted to include the quote at the beginning, even though I love that quote, which is why we went for it. Mm. But um, von, Korm, von Karman, I think, sums it up, the kind of this attitude of... Uh, because you'll hear in the interview, these missions, obviously they're run by scientists, but really it's the engineers that get them off the ground. Yeah. And, and so there's that tension, as you'll see. But science is the study of what is engineering builds what will be the scientist merely explores that which is, exists while the engineer creates what has never existed before it's wonderfully eloquent yeah so obviously von Karman is starting that little bit of snobbery right from the beginning <laughs> so, but anyway um uh, do you, would you like to hear to uh, would you like to hear kevin's uh, interview i would l- love to matthew send it on the interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space sure yeah. Yeah. okay well i uh uh Spent 40 years or so in the aerospace uh, community at large, half of which was with the Lockheed Martin Corporation, which was focused on aircraft. And then uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is part of the NASA community, which is on the spacecraft side. Uh, And it was about 20 years each, just coincidentally, I guess. Uh, I grew up in the Vietnam War era here for the U.S., and so I maybe that was the stimulus that I went on to graduate school. So when I went through graduate school, I actually uh, am not an engineer. I'm a business person. And so I majored in international business and finance and business at large. And I joined the Lockheed Martin Corporation because I've always been fascinated by uh, aircraft and planes and, and, and the things that sort out in that continuum there. So I joined them. I went overseas the first seven years in, in the Middle East on, a, on an airport project and ended up uh, probably in 60 different countries or so. Uh, uh, same, it was headquartered in the Middle East, but I 
uh, doing the con conducting the business for that program ended up in 60 different countries a number of times. So really got a different perspective of how the world works, the different cultures and what expectations are and different governments, uh, insights and things. It was, it was very useful. Uh, when I came back to the, uh, to the U.S., uh, and long story short, I became the director of business management uh, for projects, which oversees all the business activities for order sales, income cash, uh, earnings and earnings per share and internal rates of return and all those kind of corporate kinds of activities. Had um, several hundred people in my uh, division uh, did that for about, about 20 years. Worked on the F-22, the F-35, the SR-71, the U-2, the C-130s, the P-3s, all those sexy planes that everybody has heard about over the years and some you know great memories and and, and uh, milestones that we achieved in those programs. I then moved down to take the same job in uh, closer to where I live in Pasadena uh, with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is actually not a NASA center. It is what they call a federally funded research and development center, which means it's all of its work is, is, is part of a NASA prime contract. And so all of our work was with only one, one contract, and that was with NASA. So we're not civil servants. We're actually part of the California Institute of Technology. So I was a Caltech employee, actually. But there was a different focus. Where at Lockheed was all about earnings and shareholders and, and generating cash and profitability kinds of things. At JPL was all about getting funds for projects. So it was about funding and schedules and commitments and uh, proposals and supplier uh, interface dealing with OMB to get funds dealing with different centers within NASA to uh, work share and how all that's going to flow and different things that they would need. Uh, and then interfacing with, uh, you know, the whole budget cycle of appropriations to get uh, money to, you know, open for the, for the programs. So it was a different focus. It wasn't on earnings or cash flow at all. It was all cost management, funds management, proposal management, that kind of activity. So that's kind of my background. And throughout all those years, uh, I've been a professor at a local university here in Southern California in finance and, and business management kinds of things. So kind of a long time sounds kind of interesting, but while you're doing it, you're just going to work and doing your job, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that our listeners will be just thinking, crikey, you, you, you were there for some of the coolest things <laughs> ever uh i mean like yeah. Yeah, just the sr-71 that 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 is just awesome uh but um yeah. at jpl you, you mentioned this whole idea of it, it being a completely different culture um right and of course jpl are, are really famous for some of the most amazing space missions there's right. ever been the, the question that, that i really wanted to that, that kind of really wanted to talk about was this this whole idea of how does a mission actually become a mission so you know from because there's something i've noticed on the podcast is when we talk about space missions you realize that by the time a, a mission has ended some people have spent their entire life's work their their entire career on that one project and so and 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 they often span back much further than you think even things like the james webb telescope goes further right. back than you would po possibly think so so right. yeah give, give us a kind of rundown of of Sure. where a project starts and okay. and and how it gets off the ground and how it ends up actually becoming a, a mission yeah okay well let's start with where the ideas come from initially okay so every 
uh, 10 years, they called the Cato survey. So the science community uh, in each of the major themes, like let's say earth science or astronomy and physics or solar system exploration, they're different fields, they're different themes within NASA. The science community that supports those themes will do a 10 year look and it's called a decadal survey. And it says, these are the kinds of things we would like to investigate over the next 10 year period. And so that kind of becomes a baseline for what kind of missions are forthcoming in that field. So let's say the Cato survey said we want to go to Jupiter. So, or, or we want to be, want to find a habitable environment and maybe the moon of Jupiter, which is Europa, would be a candidate for that. So that becomes part of the decadal survey. So when it comes time to appropriate funds for the next series of missions, that would kind of flow to the top as a priority because the science community said that's what we should be focused on. So each of these themes have this, this decadal survey. So now you start thinking about, well, what kind of missions are going to happen? You can have two kinds of missions. One is a directed mission. NASA could say, JPL, we want to go to Mars. It's good in the next 20, if you could go every 26 months. So we want to do a sample return, or we want to put a rover, or we want to put a, uh, a communications uh, for uh, uh, that navigates Mars for communications, or we want to put a lander that's not going to move, but it's going to do a certain thing. And so that becomes a directed mission. And so you don't put a proposal together. You don't uh, compete for that mission. It's a directed mission. The other missions, which are the bulk of the missions, are actually competitive uh, missions. And, and, you put, and teams put together proposals to present to NASA for that work. Unlike the aerospace world where JP, I mean, where Lockheed or Boeing or Northrop or one of those would all be bidding on the exact same request for proposal, like an aircraft to do a certain thing. This is not the case in science missions. JPL itself may put together 14 proposals and maybe Goddard, the Goddard Space Flight Center would put a couple or three out and maybe uh, APL, the Applied Physics Lab in, in uh, Maryland, would do a similar thing. And so NASA would then decide which ones are the most uh, 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 representative of what they're trying to accomplish. But so it, it, if they're not putting proposals together for the same thing, one could be going to a comet, one could be going to an asteroid, one could be going to a planet, one could be doing something entirely different, but it's generating science. All right, so there's different classes of missions. So the first thing we, we have to determine, what is NASA asking for? It would be in response to a discovery mission, let's say, or, uh, or a scout mission is probably 200 to 300 or so million dollars. A discovery mission, which is the bulk of the missions, are uh, 400, 450 million range of dollars for the life of the project. Uh, a New Frontiers mission is more like $700 million. So it's quite a bit larger. It's going further, doing more stuff, taking longer. Uh, a flagship mission is like over a billion dollars. And generally, they're not, uh, they're all directed missions by the time you get to that point. So let's say NASA puts out a call, which is saying, we, in the next year, are going to release a uh, 
a project, we're going to select a project to do a discovery mission. And let's say it's in the earth science field, or it doesn't it could be solar system exploration, any, any, any one of those. And so a team, several teams of uh, led by a scientist, which is called a PI, which is a principal investigator. And then the project team would put together a proposal that says, we're going to go here, we're going to do this. And they create this proposal, which identifies where we're going to go, what are the level one requirements, what is the science return going to be, how much is it going to cost, how long is it going to take, and what is the benefit to the science community for that to happen. And other scientists lead teams to do the same thing, but they may be going to an entirely different place, generating entirely different science. And so I'm used to seeing JPL alone put together 12, 13 discovery mission proposals. So you're really competing against yourself. Uh, and, and other places put some together too. So JPL we might look for a scientist to partner with, maybe from Caltech, maybe from within JPL, maybe from Cornell or University of Arizona or University of Colorado or Stanford or anyone, any, MIT, anywhere. And we partner with that scientist because that scientist has probably been working on this concept for their whole career. And they want to make this mission happen. So we partner with those individuals and then we'll put a proposal together that's, that says what I you know, just articulated a minute ago. And we submit those to NASA. NASA will review all those and probably down select two, three, maybe even four, depending on what they're really interested in. So now we have, instead of 20 odd proposals, we're down to four. So the four people, the four groups of people that that have been down selected, two of which could be JPL, one could be Goddard, one could be APL. So all four entities go forward and put together a way more robust proposal going forward. And, and that proposal will take on, okay, we know this is the general concept, but no kidding, it's going to look like this. These, these are the level one, level one requirements mean you have to do that or the mission can't be successful. You must meet level one requirements in order to be successful. And so these are what the level one requirements are. And then they'll identify how many instruments do we need? How long is it going to take to get where we're going? What is the array of resources that we will need and the timing and the funds that are needed to make that happen? Uh, what what subcontractors may be partnered with us? What uh, institutions may play a role in, in this? And things of that nature. And we submit that proposal to the uh, to NASA. And out of that will come a selection. Occasionally they may select two to, to, to be a mission, but generally it's one. So now they select this proposal. So now what that means is that is becoming a mission. It's the infancy of a mission. Every mission goes through a life cycle. The life cycle are phase A, phase B, phase C, phase D, phase E. And, and it could be more than E for an extended mission, but let's go for the basic mission. So it's A, B, C, D, E. Each one of those, those phases are very specific. And there's, there's rigid criteria that goes in that, that you must meet to move from phase A to phase B. Well, if you are selected as the go forward mission, you're already in phase B because the proposal itself was phase A. So now you're in phase B. 
if it was a direct admission, you would start early and you'd be in phase A as you start going through because you've already been selected. So really, the, the in theory, the proposal phase is your phase A because you didn't compete it. You, you, were, you were awarded that, that direct admission. But back on the, on the compete admission. So now you're in phase B. So phase B is also very specific. And phase B could take a year, year and a half, maybe two. And what it does is it identifies your planning and your preliminary design. That's the two focus areas of phase B. And so you have to start developing your resource profile, your funding requirements, your you do your make or buy decisions. Are you going to do it in-house? You go out to a supplier and you're going to put the criteria for them to bid on what the work would be for a supplier, like a Lockheed or an Orbital or a Ball uh, space company to, to, to either build the spacecraft or some key components. You might have to buy solar arrays. There's all sorts of things you may have to purchase outside and you do that. All of that happens in the phase B time period. And you're doing your preliminary design now. And, and that, like I said, could be as early as a six-month phase, but generally it's a year, year and a half, maybe two years, depending on where you're going and what you're doing. But the, again, the activities there are all focused on creating a plan, which is an integrated cost and schedule plan. So they know what funding profile you need, what kind of resources, what kind of outside assistance you'll need from suppliers and what their man loading or funding profile would be. And you kind of work all that stuff out. But in theory, you're still not a mission until you go through the, the gate B to C transition. That is a huge transition. And that's where uh, the review, you, it, when you go through these life cycle phases, a, a, uh, S, uh, there's a standing review board, SRB, that is formed uh, of, of leading members in engineering and science and things that some are JPLers, some are other centers, some are uh, very well-known people in the science community. And, and they evaluate and make recommendations to NASA on whether you're prepared to jump into the next phase or not. So they review, it's a week-long review to go from phase B to phase C, and they look at all the aspects of what the requirements are. These are the gate transition requirements, and you must meet all of those. And if you don't, you have to go back and, and fix those things you didn't do and then return to do a delta review. So let's say you're going to the phase B and you actually get through that gate. You've met all the requirements, and you go forward and you have a... Uh, a, a project that is now ready for phase C. That means you are now a mission. Once you pass gate B and you're in phase C, you now become a no kidding mission. Congress has, has said, go forward with the mission. And so, so now funding is provided to go into phase C. And there's an agreement between the entity, like let's say it's JPL and NASA called an ABC commitment, which is an agency baseline commitment that says, we're going to go here, do this for this much money in this period of time. And so now you're in phase C. Phase C is your final design. So now you're getting, no kidding, this is what we're going to do. This is what it looks like. These are the instrument, instruments we'll need, the cameras, the all the different things that we need to do to meet our level one requirements at level two and level three. Uh, things that we that we're going to do. We've got all our suppliers lined up. This is the time frame. These are the milestones we need. This is our integrated schedule plan, 
and you go through that process. Phase D, and a lot of times it's called phase CD because it's together, you start cutting metal. Phase D, it stands for ATLO, which is Assemble, Test, Launch Operations. And that's where you do all of your final design, you're integrating and test, all the components come in, you assemble them, you integrate and test them, and you get ready to send the activity, the, the mission to the launch site uh, to, to be launched. And so phase C, D together could be at a very long time. It could be two years, three years, four years, longer in some cases, because they're, they're, they're very intricate and it takes a long time to do. So when you pass the phase D gate into phase E, which means now we're ready to launch. And so there's a whole launch sequence of activities and launch readiness reviews and all sorts of activities that go once the, once the mission is sent to the Cape. Earth science missions are generally launched from Vandenberg, which is in California. But most missions, especially deep space missions, are launched out of the Kennedy Space Center in, in Florida. And so once it gets to the Cape, then all of the final preparations, all the launch activities, Get ready to go from there. Obviously, the launch vehicle is 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 there. The, the, the spacecraft was on the launch vehicle. All that stuff happens, and then it's launched. Thirty days after launch, you go into phase E, which is the operations, and that takes the cruise time to wherever it's going. Like Mars is six, seven months long. Jupiter was a number of years long. It just depends on where it's going, what it's doing. And during that entire time, it's doing it's all its telemetry and navigation activities and mission operations to get it to where it's going. And then it finally gets to where it's going and it does all the science that you see on TV and you hear about later on. But each one of those activities and each one of those phases are very specific. They have absolutely no kidding requirements and criteria that has to be met in order to go to the next phase. The standing review board makes a determination that they've met that criteria and then you move into it. So phase A, B is still in the infancy of becoming a mission. It's not really a mission until it passes the phase B to C transition, which is called PDR, preliminary design review. And once you pass that, you're now a congressionally approved mission and you go through phase CD, which is your final design, integration, test, assemble, launch activities, and then it becomes a mission. So you, we as a collective public, really don't see anything until it's actually launched and on its way or actually when it gets there and returns science. So that's how a mission becomes a mission. And as you said earlier, some of these missions could be somebody's whole career. Because let's say any one of us are a scientist from a university and we've been uh, working on some concept or some science return that, we, that we're focused on, done our PhD on it maybe, well, we may have put together proposals uh, three or four times in prior years that were not selected. And so you go through the, the decision process of, well, why weren't we selected? And you try to work on those things. So we've paired with scientists that may have been trying three, four, or five times to get their mission selected, which could be you know, several years before they actually get selected. So a scientist and the team associated with that scientist may have been doing this many years before it actually becomes a, a selected mission. And then it goes through that whole life cycle all the way up to phase Z and beyond. So the entire career of a, of a team or a project or a science team could be 
you know, their whole career. And so it's very important and they are really focused on it and they're very keen on, on making that and making that happen. So that's how missions become missions. It's, it's not preordained. You have to go through a competitive activity and get your mission sold because it meets the Takedo survey intent and it is deemed, uh, 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 executable by NASA and meets the science objectives that it's trying to do. That has kind of cleared up so many of the so many of the things when I see missions being selected and then they've gone through different phases and yeah, like the, the you know, the, the readiness levels and things like that. That's answered so many of their questions, but it's also <laughs> given me a load of questions to, to think about as well. Cause the, the, going right the way back to what you said about directed missions uh, how, how do the directed missions get dreamed up? Who, what, who who actually decides what the directed missions are? Okay, the directed missions generally come, you know, they come, they flow down from NASA, but they're not spur of the moment kinds of things. For example, the Mars missions that everybody knows so well about the rovers and all of that. There's a there's a uh, a roadmap that's put out for Mars. That says, all right. This uh, the first the first mission we're going to do is a uh, an orbiter, which means we need to get something up there that's that circumnavigates Mars so that it can communicate the signals back to Earth. So if we have put a rover or a or a uh, lander on Mars, but we don't have a communications vehicle to get the data and information back to Earth, it's, then we, it doesn't help. So the first step is, all right, for the, so for the next mission, we're going to put in a, a communications vehicle that is uh, orbiting Mars. Well, we can go to Mars every 26 months. So they're saying, well, the next one will be a, a lander, let's say. We're going to land something on Mars and, and do something there. We're going to search for water or organic compounds or we drill a hole or take some weather, whatever they plan to do with a, with a lander. And then maybe the next one is a rover, which means it's mobile, obviously. So these things, these roadmaps have been planned out for long periods of time. And so the rovers that we've been so well familiar with over the last several years, the first, uh, you know, the first one was Pathfinder way back in the, you know, end of the 1900s or early 2000s, I forget when exactly it was. But the ones of note are the two rovers that were small enough to be able to bounce around and land in a big balloon bubble. So it was a little bit less complex than, a, than the next one, which was the MSL, the Mars Science Laboratory, which actually had to have, I mean, that was an exciting mission. You, you, It was so precise. It had to come into the Martian atmosphere, you know, at a certain angle. So it could actually penetrate the atmosphere. And then it had to stabilize then it had to descend to a certain altitude uh, and deploy the parachute. If the parachute didn't deploy or it tangled up or it got a rip in it, game time, it's over. That had to descend at a certain uh, period of time down to another altitude level. The parachute had to be cut and, and get out of the way. And then the rover had to employ their engines so it would stabilize. A sky crane dropped down from the underside of the space vehicle and dropped the rover. The spacecraft itself had to get out of the way so it wouldn't create dust and magnetic activity. I had to get the heck out of the way. And then the rover had to go. I mean, this was 
incredible sequence of activities. Well, this was predetermined way the heck before on what what that's going to be like and how big it's going to be and what the purpose of that's going to happen. Now, what's going on now is a Mars sample return is the next portfolio of activities. So they want to bring a sample back. So they have to send the rover there to do a certain thing. And then another one has to be able to come and pick it up at the mission after that. So this is a portfolio project. On a, on a one-time only kind of thing like Europa, as I mentioned, uh, one of the decadal surveys said, we're looking for habitability. So what's the most likely spot that we believe that we could find some indication that life exists now or may have in the past or may in the future? So it was determined that it was Europa, which is a, a moon of Jupiter. So the next mission then, which is a long time coming and it takes a lot of effort, it's a, it's a big deal, is again, it wasn't a spur of the moment. It was when can we find the funds for that to happen? What year will that be funded? How many years will do we think it will take? And so that's placed in the pantheon of, of funding requirements that will go to Congress. That, hey, we this block of time, we're going to do this, and we think we need this kind of money over this many years. And it becomes a project, a program. And it's got to compete with a manned space. You know, at the same time, human exploration uh, is ongoing as well. And that takes a lot of money, too. So all of that has to be balanced out. So it's it takes it's a long time in coming. And then NASA will determine which is the best center for that to happen. And so Europa was is a JPL mission with, with help from several centers. And uh, and that's how it becomes. So it takes a long time. It's well known way ahead of time. And it's all based on what the science community says we think we should do next. All those sort of directed missions then are the kind of the, the sort of real flagship missions that, that you yes. see coming out of JPL. Right. Are there any missions that when they get to these A, B, C, D phases, are there missions that fail to get through each of those windows? Is, yes. are, are there famous? Are there any famous ones that kind of failed to, to, uh, to get to get through that? Some have been incredibly problematic. Uh, we had one called OCO, which was an orbiting carbon observatory. It, it did go through all those missions, but it had lots of issues. And you know, it turned out, you know, the, the conversation was, "Wow, it's going to exceed the funding. It's going to slip." One of the key vendors couldn't provide. Uh, you know, they were sold uh, many times, and so the new company wasn't as focused on it. Some of the key personnel left. Uh, lots, of, lots of things like that happened. Uh, occasionally, there is a mission that doesn't make it through. Uh, it actually, in my tenure, I don't think there was one from JPL. Uh, that was, and, and the reason why it's very difficult to ultimately cancel or not fund a mission for the next phase is because a lot's been invested already. Like I said, it takes a long time. Even before it gets to the phase A period, there's pre-phase A stuff. It's all the TRLs to get to a place where you can actually say, we can go do this. And, and I, as I said, the scientists have committed some effort and time and, the, and, and NASA's provided funds. The, the program managers that NASA invested in it, the science community at NASA has already invested in it. And they don't want to say, hey, we, we don't want to spend any more money. Because all the money that we've invested so far, forget about it. It's not worth going forward. 
Usually it's because of a technical issue that is just too problematic, uh, but usually they can figure out technical solutions. So it might slip. So we've seen way more common is it takes more time to get through these gates than we originally intended. So schedule slips, either because of technical problems or because of funding problems. Or maybe another mission is a higher priority and they need we need to juggle money. And so, so NASA within a theme will might move some money around and delay uh, a certain mission, a whole cycle or a period of time. It's more likely for that to happen than to actually not move forward. However, it could not pass the gates. That happens often. Well, not often, but certainly not infrequently. And, and what happens there is they say, hey, you, you did this, but I'm not convinced you've got the right technical solution, or I'm not convinced this supplier can do something, or I'm not convinced your schedule is uh, doable, executable, or your cost might be overly optimistic. And so you, you have to do a delta review. And that could take quite a period of time to go back and fix all those things that you didn't pass. And then you do another review that addresses those open items. And once you do that, then you can move to the next gate. So that's much more likely going to happen than not and it, it be canceled. I mean, it does happen. And to be honest, I can't think of one that did, although I know there have been some, but they're infrequent for sure. So you mentioned this thing about technology readiness uh, and, the t- and, and this technology readiness level TRL. I think that's, that, that's correct, isn't it? So <laughs> that's a concept that I've seen quite a bit, particularly yes. from, from NASA. And it's, it's so when, when you're, t- if we go to the other types of missions, the, the non-directed yep. ones, and you've got, and, right. and, and you've got scientists thinking about, well, we, let's send this probe to this planet, say, and, and let's search for this chemical. And then it's right. like, well, actually, that piece of equipment doesn't exist yet. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. h- how does right. do, do do when when NASA are looking at choosing missions uh, or or yeah, yeah to, to sort of pass them on to the next level, do they yeah. look at that and say, let's try and let's try and use missions that have got technology that we know works, or do they kind of like to push on missions where it is? pushing technology that they know they've got a lot of work to do on where's the balance uh, there okay i think and i could be speaking out of school here a little bit because i'm not a technical guy but i i believe this what i'm saying is true but somebody out there might know more about it and say no you, you're wrong but I, I think this is how it is generally if we don't get to where we actually propose something until we're at trl six i think trls one through five are on the way to getting to uh, a doable or a technical technical readiness level six in my mind was we we've we know what we know how to do we need we, it's executable once we get to that point and so I think I think uh, you get where you're doing studies and where you're refining things like you know going to going to dinner one night on the back of a napkin two scientists are, are drawing something that's an idea that they want to do and all of this. Well, that, you know, that could argue with me TRL one, maybe, I don't know, but it's going to go through some maturity process, which should take some period of time. And I, I believe that to actually put forward a proposal to be 
a mission, I think it has to be TRL six. I'm almost, I'm, I'm reasonably sure that that's the case, but again, I could be wrong. There may be exceptions to that, and there may be ways to deal with that before you get there. But I think that's kind of what happens. And and you know, you have to have certain tests. You have to prove it is demand. You can demonstrate its worthiness and those kind of things uh, in order to be part of a mission to go forward. Because really, I don't think these missions, when they're when they're in phase A and B are really are really there in order to prove out technology. It might be, again, this again, I'm just making this up as I'm talking. It might be in a directed mission because when you're in phase A, it's not a proposal. And you may be in the in the design process, you may be proving out certain technical readiness stuff for certain components or certain that might in fact be the case. I, I'm not sure exactly, but uh, it would be more so in that than it would be in a proposal that you're trying to sell in the first place, because that would kind of give you a disadvantage. You come from a kind of business aspect of all this. So in terms of like the way that JPL treat this on a financial and business level, how does that Mm -hmm. all play, play out across all these various missions and, 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 you know, (laughs) presumably that's complicated. yeah, it, it's a, it's an interesting concept because scientists and engineers don't really pay a lot of attention or focus on business. Their whole thing is, I want this science, I want to get this mission launched, and therefore uh, go get me the money and, and work all this logistics with suppliers and all that stuff. Well, that's a big task, <laughs> you know, because rule number one is you can't spend money the government hasn't appropriated first of all. Uh, So you have to have funding in place to do anything. And so part of the business, of course, is to to get that. And each year you go through a, what we call a PPBE, which is program planning budget execution phase with NASA to say, these are the missions, these are the phases we're in, this is the funding requirements that we need. And you kind of negotiate that as time goes on. And it becomes a budget going forward. Now you can spend money in, in, even though money comes in yearly chunks, annual budgets, fiscal budgets, which is October 1st through September 30th, you can spend the money in future years, but you can't spend it until you have it. So if we got funds in 2021, we can spend the, those funds in 2022 in out years, uh, but we have to have it first. And so that becomes the first step is, where's the funding coming from? When are we going to get it? How are we going to staff up to meet that requirement? And how are we going to place vendors on contract to meet that funding profile? We can't award a contract to company A if we don't have the funds for that. So that's all a a game, not a game. It's it's a process that takes a lot of skills and, and working to get that. Another part of the business function is the integrated cost and schedule baseline, which becomes the operating plan for that project. And that's the forms, the agency baseline commitment for what the ultimate funding requirements are going to be. So it's a very big deal. In fact, if you don't have that, you can't pass into phase C. It's one of the key requirements is to have an integrated cost and schedule baseline. So uh, the business activity, these help the planning process of what kind of resources are needed, what kind of facilities are needed, 
When does all that happen? For example, if you and I both have our own missions, we're the project managers on, on a mission, and I need to go into the thermal test lab uh, or into a vacuum chamber of some kind, but it turns out it's the same time you need it, well, that's an issue. So we got to work through those scheduling kinds of, of criteria. So part of the business activities is that. Another piece of the business activities is actually selecting uh, a, a supplier. So you have to have, make sure the bidders are on an approved bidder list. You have to make sure that uh, you put out a request for proposal so that the other uh, suppliers can bid on it. And then you go through the uh, source selection activity, which chooses a, a, a supplier uh, and so forth. And, and so you go on and do that, assuming it's a competitive uh, a bid. Some components that are off the shelf our sole source, but the majority of them are, you go through a bidding process. So you have to you have to do all that. And then you get into the monthly rhythm of managing your cost and schedule because, hey, you're supposed to spend $100 this week, you spent 200, so that's a problem. So how are you gonna work through that? What's your workaround so that we can make sure we're not slipping schedule? Because some of these, you know, schedule is very critical. Like Mars, for example, we can only launch every 26 months and there's only a couple of weeks of window in that launch period. If you miss that, you wait another 26 months. So missing schedule is not an option. So you got to figure that. What's the risk and what is the likelihood of that risk happening? And and what 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 do you do about it? And how much is it going to cost? You know, a lot of scientists and project people say, well, it's a workaround. It's not going to cost us any because it's still within the schedule. And the answer is, of course, it's going to cost. Because if that was the most optimal plan, that's what you would have proposed in the first place. So all of that is a balance for the business type folks. And then you have to work with the project to make sure their staff, the staffing profile is consistent with their plan. If not, how are you adjusting that? What does it mean to the schedule? What does it mean for suppliers coming on board? What does it mean for making commitment? So even if we're not spending the money yet, we can't even make a commitment if we don't have funds, right? So even if you are one of my suppliers and you need money next year, and I know we're gonna get money next year, but we don't have it yet. I can't even commit those funds because things happen and maybe it didn't happen. So all that has to be worked out. It's a very it's a it's a difficult and and onerous process to, to do that. And then the biggest issue you gotta deal with is what happens if the money's not enough. At what point do you have to go and say, I'm sorry, but we can't complete either this year or this project with the current funds that we have? And then you go through the whole mating dance of, of seeing how that's going to work and put a proposal in to get additional funds and what year you need them. And that whole negotiation uh, is, is, a, is a balancing act. I remember, I'll tell you a really quick story. One of the early years I was there, one of the scientists, which was just doing a study, it wasn't even a mission. It was, a, I think it was, I'm, I'm a little bit making this up for dollar value, but I think it was around $750,000. And he did not plan his money to get through the year. And let's, um, let's say it's July or August now. Well, he came in to, to see me and said, hey, I'm, I don't have enough money to to get to October 1st when my next funding is, is in place. So you need to give me more money. And I said, well, I don't have more money. It's a, it's a NASA has to fund it. I, I don't, I don't write you a check for this. 
Caltech doesn't provide funds. You know, JPL only gets funds from NASA. It doesn't create the funds. You just didn't plan it very well, and you didn't come back early enough for us to go out and ask for more money for this project because it's only like a month to go, and it takes that amount of time to, to deal with it. So I said, you're going to have to stop until October. Well, he was extremely upset and said, well, this is a very important mission, and you need to find, you need to give me the money. I said, like, you're not understanding. I cannot give money that's not appropriated by, by NASA via Congress. I just can't do that. And then after a couple of ugly words, the comment he made to me is, well, then you need to call the president. And I said, of the United States? You know, this was George Bush <laughs> at this point. You know, they, the point I'm trying to make is these folks, one, don't focus on business. But two, they think what they're doing is, is needed by humankind. And it's critical to the, to the well-being of, of, of mankind at large. And so thinking that we had the uh, power to call some wizard at NASA or more likely the White House to get funding. I mean, this is the kind of focus that some of these people have. And it's, you know, we look, we think of it as amusing, but they're serious. They, they really believe what they're doing is important enough to ring bells at the highest levels. <laughs> yeah, that is quite. <laughs> can you phone the president? That is. Uh, yeah, I mean, see, I, I, I don't have him on my rolling. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. Is there is there any particular missions that uh, you really enjoyed working on? Is there is there is there the smoothest mission and the toughest mission in there? Uh, I well, the toughest mission had to be the the Mars rover. The, the bigger one, the first big one, which was MSL, we call it, because that one, so many things had to go right. And if any one of them went wrong, it was $2 billion on the surface of Mars uh, in a big pile. So that was really, really intense. And, and I don't know if you've seen or heard or read or viewed a little videos called The Seven Minutes of Terror. Which have, is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that was a real tough one, and I remember the the launch readiness review process. That uh, I think it was the one of the the uh, science. I mean, the uh, head of the science mission directorate at NASA asked our project manager, uh, "What keeps you up at night? What do you worry about most in this launch?" And his answer was the parachute. Because the parachute was so big, it could not, it was, there was no facility on Earth that could actually test it. So it had to be simulated or, or some, some form in a wind tunnel in, in some fashion, but it couldn't be properly tested. And these things get tangled and these things get ripped. And so it was really the maiden deployment of this really massive parachute, bigger than any parachute ever created, had to deploy at the right time, at the right uh, whatever, for it to fully engage. And he said, all the seven minutes of terror and all these things that have to go right, I think if there's a critical, if something has got me really worried, it's the parachute. Well, it turns out it went fine. But those are the kind of things they, they deal with. So that, of course, was really an exciting, exciting mission. I, 
I think another one for me was the mission of Jupiter. It was called Juno. It's because it hadn't, uh, we haven't had had one in quite some time. It was a long process in, in making that project. Uh, and uh, and it, I think it took like five years or so to get there. And it was looking, it was, it was, it was making 32 orbits around Ju uh, Jupiter to get some gravitational and some other information. I forget exactly what the requirements were. But it, uh, it was exciting because it was a, such a big project. It was a lot of money. And we had a lot of issues as it, just like any mission would, would happen. So those are the two that seem to come to mind as the most exciting ones for me in that time period. But almost every mission is exciting because it's a launch. Anything can go wrong. The weather could create uh, a situation where you you miss your launch window because the weather's not cooperating. You know, these things are uh, just things you have to deal with all the time. The really frightening aspect is is launch itself, isn't it? When you've got <laughs> decades of work and it could just all, right. all blow, blow up on the launch pad. <laughs> Yeah, and it's right. and it's uh, and it's that's yeah, it's it's such a frightening moment. But so uh, yeah, there's there's so many space missions that go well. I mean, JPL just oh, have right. an ex have an extraordinary record. So obviously, the right. system that you have in place is unbelievably rigorous and 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 works absolutely. And you know, in the, in the schedule and the cost, we we factor in a lot of risk and reserve. So that, you know, one one thing that is different from a, a corporate environment where they're focused on cash flow and things is if I'm a project manager on a mission and I I have money left over, in other words, I got $500 million to do this mission. And I think when we go to launch, I might have 450 spent. So I have 50 million extra, which was very extraordinarily rare, but let's say we did. So a lot of people say, well, you did good, you underran, great job. And the answer is no, because that means I had $50 million that I could have reduced the risk. I could have spent that money in mitigating whatever outstanding risk there was, because I don't want to leave any money on the table, because I could either reduce risk or increase my science. And that's the profit of a science mission, is the science return. So underrunning is not thought of in favorable light. So you, a lot of people think, hey, we underspent your budget, so you're a good manager. And the answer is no, I didn't spend it wisely because I could have run another test. I could have bought another instrument. I could have uh, allowed it to be up in space longer, you know, to get more science. I, mean, I could have done something with that money that would have enhanced the science return, reduced the risk, or created more value. And therefore, I don't want to do this. So that's a big difference. And so that's another business focus and different ways to, to look at that. But we do have reserve both in the schedule and in, in, the, uh, in the cost. In fact, as you go through those phases and the reviews of those phases, those review boards ask you have to spend a lot of time going through to make sure you've got enough schedule reserve and enough uh, cost reserve to, to deal with the eventualities that come up. I can barely get my head around just how complicated these 
missions are and and the amount i mean give us give us a sort of rough estimate of how many people are involved in something like the msl or or juno and how many people actually get involved in these projects presumably it's it's hundreds if not thousands of people well at jpl alone it's certainly a few hundred people uh between the engineers and the the people working in all the shops and the laboratories and you know the whole facility and logistics and you know everybody in the world touches these things in one form or another mission control a safety uh, mission assurance i mean uh uh, business people facilities people test people integration people electrical and mechanical fab people test people instrumentation you know you name it so it could be several hundred people have worked on this project over its lifetime uh, at the peak, it might be uh, you know more than that. I mean, several hundred people. But then you got to look at the all the suppliers that support it. So maybe, let's say, maybe Lockheed is doing the spacecraft. Well, they probably have a couple hundred people at Lockheed facility working the spacecraft. And maybe you have somebody else working the solar panels. Others are building a cryo cooler. Another vendor is building, you know, some power system or something else. Whatever it happens to be. You add all those people, and it—that's how you get to seven hundred million dollars. Yeah, is there is there yeah. any one piece of equipment that had the most eye-watering uh, line item <laughs> that you can recall? Uh, I think, I think a couple of things always seem to be a problem. <laughs> one is I mentioned the cryo cooler, and I don't know why. I'm not a scientist or, or an engineer, but cryo coolers tend to be an issue. I, I'm not sure why. Uh, I guess each mission has a different requirement of how to cool something down to a certain level and maybe, uh, you know, to get one or two more degrees colder is a big deal. I'm not sure, but that always seemed to surface. Also, power systems, uh, power supplies gave us headaches uh, quite often for some reason or other. Uh, You know, there's always a balance between power and and mass. You know, it's always one of the things you've got to look at because every time you add something to a mission, it takes up space, adds weight, therefore you need more power. And so there's a lot of trade-offs between mass and power, and maybe that's part of the problem. I think we also had problems with solar system. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, the solar panels, I mean. not because they're difficult. It's that a lot of solar providers, suppliers seem to go out of business or something. And so we would contract with a vendor and sure enough, in a year or so, way before we need them, which could be several years in the future, they're no longer in business. And we got to re-vector how that happens. So it wasn't the complications due to that. It was just, just that. So those things kind of happen. Uh, a lot of times when you put out a uh, a contract with a smaller company and they get bought and sold and they, or they get a bigger mission and so their key personnel are siphoned off that mission to do other things and so the less experienced people are put on a on, a, on the mission we're working for example might might be a real problem we've, we've run into a few of those where the, you know the key people have been have left for one reason or another before we needed their expertise and and it created issues so 
those are the things that that happen. One one time we had a situation where we were going to integrate uh, one of the, the vehicles at a facility of the contractor, and we, because of the workload that they had, which apparently increased or something happened to where they didn't have room for it, so they had to uh, move the, our project from where they were to a location in Arizona. Well, it drives all these questions. Well, how are you going to get it there? Who's going to pay that cost? What about the people that are at the facility in Arizona? Have they ever done this kind of mission before? The leadership that you were going to place from you know the home office is now not there. You have a whole set of infrastructure that's different than you planned on. You know, all sorts of questions pop up as to is this gonna is this okay? Can we do this? Is this you know what does this mean? Well, it turned out it was fine. But the point is, these things happen because missions take time. Life life moves on. Other things happen. New technology comes up. So a lot of times you you're working on something, and all of a sudden something better comes up or comes along. Well, do you keep doing what you're doing, or do you change to the new technology? I mean, there's, these trade offs have to happen. Uh, uh, routinely, and, and let's say you've already integrated the old technology. Well, you can't undo that now and put new stuff in. So these kinds of conversations create logistical issues that that over the life of a seven year uh, launch between cre- you know uh, uh, project initiation to launch, you know it could be you know seven five to seven years is probably average. That's that's a long time, and, and things happen as we all know. Funding could change. New governments come into place. New presidents change. Uh, you know, the world has crises. And pandemics show up. <laughs> all this happens to where all this all this shifts, and it can create all sorts of problems. Uh, it's it's a really really fascinating subject, and, and yeah. it'd be great to get to just talk about one of your missions one day. But yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's that's that's really helped me get my head around how. You know these these missions even happen because I, I often look at a project and you know I, I've done project management myself, uh, but it's in the it's in the music industry and and you sometimes yeah. think you know you know getting to a reasonably complex outcome from nothing, <laughs> but when you look at right. a space mission like you know <laughs> Curiosity or or <laughs> Juno and you think well I mean that's you know it's so complicated involving so many. Uh, different companies and and different you know uh, facilities and different agencies and often international partners and things like that that it's mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's it's an absolutely incredible uh, incredible achievement that anyone can sort of <laughs> project management pro- project manage it at all i mean it's but but yeah i mean jpl had such a such i've got such an amazing reputation in terms of mm-hmm. like, like until recently the only people to actually get to the surface on <laughs> get to the surface of mars intact right <laughs> uh, yeah it's a it's a big deal and and now you know it's interesting the uh, this the engineering team as they go through these mars missions now it almost becomes routine you know that you don't see the sense of of panic or not panic is not the, but the real like good heavens kind of attitude it's it's tenseness and nervousness seems to be more more they're more at ease now you know it's like all right launch sequence happened this happened it's like oh hum because we perfected that those key milestones in this it, it's just it's fascinating yeah I, I just don't i don't know how these people can can 
do that. It's remarkable. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. You bet. It's been fun. And anytime you got anything else or you want to chat about, send me a note and we'll we'll reconvene. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. There it is. Uh, this is a very quick episode, as you can tell, Chris. I'm 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 panicking because I've got so much to do this week. As I should imagine, a lot of people. It's the first week back at university, ah. so. It's all very stressful. <laughs> I have a nine thirty lecture just as this podcast is coming out, so I'm going to feel sick. Oof. Well, do you I'm know, totally unprepared. Just take a breath. Take a breath. You know, just in. Mm. You know, remember that consciousness is just happening all the time to you. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. No, true. In fact, I've only just become conscious, and everything that's happened before is a memory that's been put there. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely right. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Anyway, let's not get into a brain in a vat thing right now. Yeah, sure, sure. It's just too late. Uh, yeah, now, if we're not brain in, brains in vats, where can people go and see the show notes, Chris? Go to interplanetary.org.uk. That's a very good place to start. And if you really want to get involved, go to www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. We'll see you on the Discord. And shout out to all the patrons, which literally drive this podcast big up, along big up. and without them i'd be doomed yeah yeah absolutely love you guys any plans any any plans this week doing any space stuff matthew i am about to do a one week um research and development on a comedy play i'm going to be working on a play as an actor for a week it's just going to be fantastic so i'm really looking forward to that and i'll let you know how all that goes as an actor. An actor, yes. Yes, I've been getting lots of practice doing the quotes at the beginning of these podcasts, so I should be all, all me voices. As an actor, are you a bit of a lovey? Uh, yeah, 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 I'm properly into that sort of, you know, fan of me centre yeah. and, you know, that type of thing and, you know, a bit of Stanislavski oh, and approach. Excellent, excellent. I'm, I'm not into all that, you know, method. That's that's a load of rubbish, that, you know, that Jim Carrey thing where he was like completely became Andy Kaufman. It was just, bleh. no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't go mad. Don't go mental. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, you, you need to be in a film where you play like Neil Armstrong. Oh, That'd be pretty cool. Yes, you? please. But, you know, I, I don't want to put Ryan Gosling to shame. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 Mark Kelly that that needs to play Ryan Gosling playing Neil Armstrong. <laughs> it's gonna be very meta. <laughs> yeah. Not the art. That's that's the patron Mark Kelly. Just in case someone got confused oh. that it was uh, Mark Kelly, brother of Scott Kelly, which would uh, who looks nothing like Ryan Gosling, but is is an astronaut. <laughs> right. Anyway, <laughs> on that bombshell. Have a good week, Matthew. See you soon. Have a good week and bye bye. Watch my cuts, watch my cuts, watch my cuts.